Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to December the 14th, 2020, episode 2792, Growing Your Own Poultry Feed. Uh, and this was one that was kind of spurred by uh, Christian, the Ice Age farmer, even though I didn't completely agree with him. And even after I did this episode, I actually had Christian on the show and we discussed our disagreement. Christian at the time was saying that we were going to be deep into shortages right now to the point where people would actually be without food. Uh, not you might have limits placed on certain things or have to pay more or not be able to get certain things certain days. And I said, I, I don't think so. And he was speaking mainly of the grain, the legume crops, so soy, uh, wheat, barley, those those core grains, and then that affecting the availability of livestock. And I said, I, and he said, I respectfully disagree. And I was like, okay, fine. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Well, um, I think my more caught, my more uh, conservative viewpoint on this that no, we're probably not going to have people starving to death looking for the last couple grains at the feed store to live on. But there would be some shortages and disruptions and ebb and flow in the supply system. And that I, I believe that we're only beginning to see this. Like, I could still be wrong. Christian might just be a, another year before he's right. Uh, or I, more in my viewpoint, we're going to see continuous uh, upward pressure on pricing due to both less grain being produced in the United States, more green, grain being exported from the United States, and inflation. And then a desire by the powers that be to get us to eat less meat because it's good for them that we gruel and we are compliant. And with that in mind, I, I, I sat down uh, a little less than a, a little less than a year ago, a little over a year ago. I'm sorry, and uh, a little less than a year ago. Gee, I can't get this right. I'm, this is my last one in the rewind series. I've been I did them all in one day, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, um, a little less than a year ago, I sat down and did this episode. And I think it's as relevant today as it was at the time that I did it. And I do think that if we're really going to start closing the loop on things, if we're really going to start expanding our ability to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, and work within communities, then being able to feed our animals is is really critical to that, not relying 100% on a feed store. And with as many ducks as I run, I do rely on a feed store. But I've been able to drastically reduce my expenses by finding less expensive feed that meets my standards and by producing a lot of feed for them myself on my property this year. And I did mine mainly with water plants. That's worked off, worked out really well. I don't really get into that in this episode, but I wanted to add that in that my efforts in growing um, uh, water hyacinth have paid off. The ducks love them. They eat it fresh, and they eat it kind of as it rots down in the compost as well. It's high protein. It makes very, very happy ducks. Uh, duckweed has done well for me on this as well. Uh, what hasn't done well is a, a plant called azola, and it's not that they won't eat it. They actually seem to like it better, but once it gets really hot out, it, it all died on me this year, and it died in all of my systems. I have little bits of it starting to come back right now, so uh, we'll have to see on that one in my climate. But basically... The more solar exposure the system got that it was in, the quicker it died. It turned like black and went away. But duckweed and uh, water hyacinth have both been outstanding feedstock for me, in addition to all the ideas that you're going to get in this episode today. And with that, let's head on back to a little less than a year ago, Jack. December 14th, 2020, originally episode 2792, Growing Your Own Poultry Feed. And remember... You can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I hope you've enjoyed the skill set series, and Monday I will be back. I shall return with Tales from Sanibel Island and a brand new episode. Let's go ahead and start off with a quote of the day. I really like this one. It's from Rick Warren. He said, life is a series of problem-solving opportunities. The problems you face will either defeat you or develop you depending on how you respond to them. Life 
is a series of problem-solving opportunities. The problems you face will either defeat you or develop you depending on how you respond to them. It's exactly what we're doing today. That's why I picked this quote. I actually went and looked for problem-solving quotes today. What we're looking at is the potential for a problem. Increased feed, stock, feed, feed costs or limited availability of feed. Now, to me, there's a couple things we can do. We can wail and gnash our teeth and, and say, oh, my God, it's going to be terrible. We can all run out and buy another deep freezer and stock it with meat so that we don't have to worry about not being able to get meat because the meat can't get fed. We can go out and we can buy, you know, 30 or 40 steel cans, steel trash cans, and fill them up with feed right now and hope it doesn't go bad because it will. Or we can take steps so that we're able to use reserves where we need them, but we can also begin to produce more. And, and that's what I'm coming at with this today. And I want to, again, reiterate, I'm not talking about pastured, right? I really don't want to dig into pasture and greens and such today just because we're not doing it today. It is something you should do, too, and maybe maybe not next week because next week's a short week, but maybe with a week or two when we come back, we'll talk about growing more of the greens, the nutrition, the browse, etc. for your birds, because we've talked about that plenty in the past, too. So I'm not saying that that's not a good thing. I'm saying that in a single show, I can only cover so much. And because of that, we're just we're just kind of punting that and saying that's... And the other side of that is, when I look at most of y'all that are growing chickens, you have no shortage of green matter for them to eat. There's other things you can plant. There's things that you can do that you can improve. And some of the stuff we're going to talk about today provides not only a... You know, a, a nutritional bomb, right? Like sunflower is one of our first ones. Like there's a huge amount of uh, energy in Blackwell sunflower. But it also provides some level of green matter as well. Sunflower, obviously, only the sprouts would do that, but that's one of our advantages. We'll say until we get there. But a lot of the things that we look at, like pea, for instance, pea all, it has that, you know, call it a grain yield. It's really not a grain. It's, it's a legume. Um, but it also has a lot of greenery yield as well. So we're kind of covering it without covering it. But the position I'm coming from today is definitely not all or nothing. I'm not talking about growing 100% of your poultry feed. I think that's a big step, and if you can do it, great. But I think going from zero to 100%, even in a single season, is probably not going to happen for most people unless you have ideal conditions with which to do it. And my other thing I'm coming at this with is you're better off even if you don't need to rely on it. I mean, what it comes down to is if nothing else, it can save you money, and that's always good. There's never been a time in my life where I'm like, gee, I wish I had less money. I, I, I'll look at all this stupid money I have. I hate this stupid money. Let me get rid of it, right? I don't hate money, right? I, and people have me, you know, love of money is the root of all evil. I don't necessarily love money, but I don't hate it. I don't treat it poorly. Money goes where it's treated well. That's a famous statement from Peter Schiff, and he was talking about how governments treat money, and if governments treat money poorly, then obviously businesses and individuals move their wealth into other national, uh, and under nationalized forms of, of wealth. Uh, they, they offshore. But this is something that's a constant truth from the small micro to the giant macro. If you treat money poorly, you'll have less money. If you treat money well, you'll have more money. No matter what your income level is. It doesn't matter. Now, that doesn't mean that a person can't have a really great income, treat money poorly, and still have more money than a person who treats it well has a very, very low income. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying relative to your income, you will have more money if you treat money well than if you don't. And growing your own feed is a way to treat money well and going into a time when that may be more important than ever. So... Let's just go through some of my top energy, carb, protein, fat crops for poultry. Again, we're talking about replacing the feed you buy in a bag here, right? And we're talking about at least adjuncting that. And each one of these has pluses and minuses, and some, some of them have a few things I'm not totally clear on how much you should rely on them. And I'll, I'll bring those up when we get to them, and I'll talk about ways to mitigate them. A couple are even, I don't know. I don't know how well this would work, but at least you can check into it and see for yourself. My first one, and the one that I think is the best, the easiest, and the biggest return 
of the investment of time and energy and money is black oil sunflower. If you were to kind of look at what most people feed birds in this country, it's black oil sunflower. There is no shortage of it. It's often grown in seasons where a field otherwise would grow nothing. It's, it's kind of a cover crop. It is very hardy. It, it, it suffers from very few diseases. It's fairly drought tolerant as long as it gets some moisture, right? It will survive when a lot of other things will really start to kind of fall off. It's very easy to grow. It grows all the time around here without us even planting it. Every place we hang a bird feeder for Dorothy, we end up with some sunflowers growing. Once it attains sufficient size, birds tend to leave it alone as far as the plant part. So when it's young and they're sprouting, you know, probably one of the reasons we get less uh, sunflowers growing uh, as volunteers than we would otherwise is when it first sprouts, they love it, right? Youngs, because sunflower microgreens are awesome. Everybody should probably be growing at least some of that for themselves. They're nutritional powerhouses. They're, they're high in uh, fats and protein both. But once they get a couple, three true leaves on them, they get hairy, and they're not so tasty anymore. And the way you feel about them is pretty much the way that chickens and ducks feel about them. My chickens and ducks, once a sunflower's got any size to it, they walk right past it. The only danger they they have to it until it gets to a, a big enough size is they might walk over it and, and flatten it. So you, you've got something that once we get, you know, because like our next one's going to be wheat and barley and stuff. When wheat's, you know, Six inches tall, they're still eat, they'll still eat it, right? They'll eat the grass part of it, which is, is, is healthy for them, but it also reduces how much of it's going to mature for you. With sunflower, you have that advantage that you're not going to be tearing it apart on its way up. The yield is high. One plant produces a lot of sunflower and a lot of energy. The harvest method is simplistic, and I, I, I really caution you to not think about how you would be handling these plants today if you were growing them for people when you're growing them for birds, okay? You have no need to separate sunflower seeds from flower seed heads unless you want to save some for reseeding next year when you're feeding chickens or ducks. You simply cut the heads off the flowers, let them dry out, Store them like hung in a, a Ziploc bag or something like that because if they're stored somewhere mice or rats can get to them, they will eat them. And when you want to feed your birds, you just toss the head out. Now, I have found birds can be stupid, and I will generally make sure that I kind of set them seed side up for them because they'll sit there and not figure out how to turn them over sometimes. I will often for them kind of break those heads because the heads of a good mature plant will be about six inches in diameter into like four sections. It makes it a little easier for ducks. Chickens have no problem. Chickens wipe them out. I'll take a dried sunflower head and hold it, and the chickens just come pick all the seeds right out of them. So I like that you have this ability to, to provide this material to your birds to eat without doing any real work. Next up is wheat, barley, rye. I'm going to put all that together kind of in one. Triticale, which is a hybrid, etc. My real advantage to this for many of you is you can grow it through your winter and have it in your spring. It makes a great cover crop, so it does double duty. When you harvest it, you can harvest basically the grain heads with like a rice knife or a sickle, and then you can just chop and drop the rest of it, and you've got a mulch for your you know, for your crops that are going in in spring. So it has a great deal of utility like that if you're growing it in your garden. That's exactly how I grow it. I, this year I'm growing barley. I tend to grow different grains different years. I'm trying barley this year uh, because I had some barley straw that had some seed heads in it, and it did really good on its own without trying when I used that for mulch. So I figured why not go ahead and grow barley again this year. And I've got it's up about six inches tall. It's in the garden where the birds can't see it, get to it, and mess with it. You grow it on the ground, like I said, this is something that they're going to consume but as long as you can grow enough of it or protect enough of it, that's not a bad thing. Again, don't think like you're growing wheat, barley, rye, etc. for humans when you're dealing with birds. Birds have no problem getting at that material right off of the seed heads. So again, I'm, I'm a big believer in cut enough of it so that you can put it in the sheaths or bundles, let it dry out, store it somewhere, and feed, feed it whole to your birds. 
so wheat, barley, rye, etc. Black-eyed pea, and I'm, I really didn't kind of group these into, you know, summer and winter crops. Sunflower you can grow, I mean, it grows here right now. It, it takes a pretty good freeze to kill sunflower off. Um, wheat, you know, generally most people grow wheat and barley, etc. through your winter into your spring. Uh, Black-eyed pea, of course, is going to be something you're going to grow in your summer season. It's also a great cover crop. Chickens, in particular, really like black-eyed pea plants, not just the pods. That means they have to be grown somewhere that your chickens are fenced out of, your paddock shifting, something like that, because they will absolutely devour uh, black-eyed peas. We grew one year, we did a run of Red Runner chickens, and in one of the uh, like chicken confinement areas that we had that was you know here by the prior owner, basically I went in and just seeded it and mulched it and watered it. And I let it grow. And it was, you know, 250 square foot. Uh, and it was almost all black-eyed pea. A little bit of some other stuff in there, but almost all black-eyed pea. Two weeks before we were going to slaughter those birds, we just let them in there. By the time slaughter day came, there was, there was not a scrap of it left. They ate it all. It's a great feed. It has a high protein count. Bird, if birds seem to find them very, very palatable. And again, they can be harvested and used dried. And we can harvest the seed, we can leave it in the pods, we can throw it to chickens, they'll, they'll peck through it. I have found some legumes in dry form chickens aren't real interested in. I have seen that they tend to eat black-eyed pea like that, but they definitely prefer it green. So it might be one that more of what you want to do with it is, is to go ahead and feed it uh, by you know kind of fencing in or out and allowing them access when it is you know, 80% mature, or to just go ahead and, if you have it someplace protected from them, to go ahead and harvest with a seed, uh, like a sickle or something, and go ahead and, and bring them, you know, a little bit at a time over time. It also grows back really well. In long climates like ours, I've seen black-eyed pea or red cow pea or anything in that the cow pea family grow. You can cut 50% of it back, you feed it, and it grows back. And you feed it, and it grows back. So that would be another one to look at. Millet. I have found millet to be the easiest summer seed grain type thing to grow that there is that birds like. It's good for them. It's good for their growth rates. It doesn't. It's not high in anti-nutrients like amaranth can be, and I'll talk about that later. Um, and, I mean, it's dead simple. It is dead simple. My first experience growing millet was completely by accident. Uh, when I was about eight years old, my grandmother fed birds in her backyard, and it was kind of a new housing development. There was still woods back there when she first started doing it. And I ended up building this little, it was like a garden without it being a garden, a little, like, surrounded with a border, and I would put all kinds of seed out there for the birds and watch the birds come, because uh, quail would come in. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, that quail would come in and eat the sunflower seeds and the millet and all that. And over time, as they continuously came into this area and kind of dug it up and ate and fed and crapped, it became pretty fertile, and the millet started growing on its own. Whatever leftover millet would be left over there. And it grew, and it got seed heads, and it made more millet, and then the birds would come in and eat the seed. And I thought it was just awesome. And I ended up actually turning that area when we ended up putting a fence in and other houses got built and it stopped being such a cool little wildlife area into a garden. I grew beans and stuff like that right in it. But millet, I've grown here. I've grown white proso millet, which seems to be one of the most palatable and desirable millets uh, for birds. Quail love it. Chickens love it. Ducks, I really haven't paid much attention to what they do with the white proso, but I would imagine that ducks probably eat it too. What I grew here, the ducks didn't really have a huge amount of care for, which I find odd because it is one of the, and maybe they're just so well fed they didn't, they didn't really take to it, but one of the most planted for wild duck hunters things out there, and it's Japanese millet. And it was incredibly fast, and it wasn't just incredibly fast growing to size. It was incredibly fast growing to seed heads. I, I can't remember exactly how long, but I was, I'm pretty sure that I came to the determination on the same piece of ground you could easily get three harvests a year in a long season like I have off the same piece of ground. That's a lot of production. Again, you're talking about some that form seed heads. 
Chickens are more than happy to simply pick all the seeds off. You don't have to do any work. There are literally dozens of varieties of millet um, that you can look at and determine for your climate and for your needs that, that seem to be best. But I would put it up there with, with if you grew sunflower and millet for your chicken flock alone, you should be able to cut your feed bill just with those two additions. I want to back up for a minute on a couple things I already covered today because I realized I missed saying a couple things. Number one, on sunflower. It is a, a thing I think it would take a conscious effort to do, but you can overfeed especially chickens and ducks sunflower. You can feed them too much. You almost would have to exclude them from eating anything else to cause this to happen, but with the amount of oil in it and what have you, it can actually cause them at times to go into an early molt. So it's just something to be aware of. The next was the black-eyed pea thing, and, and this will apply to some of the other uh, legumes, pea, etc. If they're not fed green, you may find that your birds will find them much more palatable if they, would have, if they are soaked. So you may want to soak any kind of a hard bean-type thing unless you have some sort of a feed mill where you can do your own grinding and, and, and stuff like that. Okay, next up is, uh, again, let's finish up on millet. Millet... There is, again, just so much variety. It is so fast-growing. It is actually one of the world's great survival crops for humans as well. It's such a small grain. It's not something that we eat a lot of in the United States. But because it's such a quick-turn crop, it does have a relatively for-a-seed uh, high-protein and reasonable fat content. Uh, it is used a lot throughout the world to feed people. And a lot of these crops can be used you know, if you choose to eat them for you anyway or as uh, reserves and backups for humans as well. The next is oat. And uh, I broke that out from, from, from barley and wheat and rye because it is kind of a different seed head that forms. Like white cuss oat would be uh, one particular that you can grow really, really easily. It is great for soil building. It's another one of the crops that I've used as cover crops in gardens and cover crops for food forests and things like that. The reason I stopped using it in my gardens for cover cropping, though, is it's so deep-rooted and so huge and so dominating. And even though it will eventually summer kill, it's kind of hard to get rid of it early when you want to be planting your, your first vegetables and things like that in your garden. So that's why I kind of I went away from it. It's it's almost like you've created sod in your garden. It's it's so massively clumping, but in places where it makes sense to grow, like on swell berms and things like that, it is fantastic the amount of soil building it does. Then you get a grain yield. I've my my birds have always been happy to eat oat uh, right off the the stalks and what have you. Next up today, pea and specifically winter pea. Uh, the type of pea that we generally don't grow for humans, which I've actually learned this year is a pretty good crop for humans. But what I'm talking about is like uh, Austrian winter pea. This is a great crop because we can grow it through the winter. We can feed it to our birds toward the beginning of spring when a lot of other things are just starting to become available. It's high in protein. It's incredibly palatable to them. If you don't let it become a dry uh, product, they will, they will just tear into it. The greens... Of, of winter pea, uh, we don't, again, we don't generally think of as human food, are delicious. The, it, it's literally like a pea salad. You can just cut the, and I'm not talking about just the tendrils. I'm talking about, you know, substantially sized plants. You can just cut the pea leaves off and, 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 and add them to your salads. And the peas themselves don't taste too bad either. They're just kind of small. It's a little bit of work for a yield. But this is a good kind of both birds and human crop. And again, you're talking about a, a, a plant that improves soil. So it makes a good winter cover crop in the garden that then can be fed to your birds in the early spring. Uh, next up today is buckwheat. Buckwheat is an incredible grain. It really is for birds. I, my, my ducks and chickens both go nuts on, on buckwheat. One thing you have to be careful, though, with buckwheat, if you're growing it and you're allowing them free access to it, is that if they eat too much buckwheat greens, they can become photosensitive and actually begin to get, like, sunburn around the, the tops of their heads or wherever their feathers are thin. And if you couple this with, if they, and since you grow it in the summer and into the early fall, if you get a high amount of buckwheat consumption by poultry, especially chickens, at the time of the molt, when their feathers are thinnest, that's a really bad thing for them with the sun. 
So you just want to control the amount of buckwheat greens that they're able to get. So you either want to grow buckwheat if you're going to do like, because there's a couple ways to do this, right? We can harvest and give to birds, or we can grow in clumps and allow access at different times to the birds. And that's the easy way. We do no work, right? With buckwheat, if you're going to do the kind of, you know, like grow it in a pasture, grow it as a cover crop, mix other things with it, you probably want to keep it down in the range of about 20% of the total bulk of what you're growing. And you're probably not going to have any, don't let some, don't let that scare you away from buckwheat. What I'm talking about is if you grow a giant field of buckwheat and let you, you let birds feed on almost nothing but it exclusively, and you'd almost have to confine them to do this, and they eat too, just the same way with the black oil sunflower. Too much of it, they can get this photosensitivity problem. Next up today, and I should have probably just grouped this with winter peas, bell beans. Bell beans are basically, what they really look like are little favas, and, and birds love those as well. And again, it's one of those crops that's kind of better to feed them in that green state than it is to feed them uh, as, a, as a dry product. If you fill it, feed it to them as a dry grain product, you're probably going to find that they're going to ignore it. A lot of the legumes, when they're dry, birds will ignore. Some of the legumes do have some anti-nutrients and some toxicity. You'll notice I don't have soy in here. I don't believe in feeding soy to wildlife. But soy is one of the crops that absolutely, when you're talking about feeding it to chickens and a lot of other livestock, must be processed with heat before it's fed to them. It's actually highly toxic raw. And there's a lot of things like that. Um, so with bell beans, with winter pea, etc., you, you, you want to be thinking about letting them have that before it goes all the way to um, a, a cured state. Or you're going to have to do some level of secondary processing or they're just not going to eat it. Next is uh, vetch. Vetch is one that makes a really good pasture crop, a really good green crop, really good soil improver. But it does produce little pods with little bitty vetch seeds in it. And man, do they tear that up too. So it's another one that you can look at growing. Um, just plain old purple vetch is what I found to be, be the best. I have purple vetch naturalized on my property. Right now is about when it really starts to show up, and it'll grow into the spring, and it kind of disappears in the summer, and it comes back every year. And it comes back in just little places and parts and little niches that it's found. But it is so resilient that, I mean, I don't think I've thrown a vetch seed on the ground here for four or five years, and it's still growing here. It, I don't know how it ended up on my property in Arkansas, but it was on my property in Arkansas before I knew what it was. Because like I need to get some vetch, and my neighbor's like, "That's vetch right there," and so we had vetch growing wild on our property in in Arkansas, which was up on the top of a mountain. Uh, garbanzo bean is one that I would put a question mark next to. I did some research and ground into poultry feed. It's actually used a lot in places other than the United States as another way to bulk up poultry feed in places where they don't grow the hell out of soy. Um, it seems like a, a completely valid source of uh, nutrition for your birds. But again, I would think that it would probably need some level of secondary processing. Uh, but it is a good food for humans as well. I, I would think it would need to be at least soaked. Again, I've just noticed that chickens pretty much ignore hard, dry legumes. Um, sorghum. Sorghum's one that we have to be careful with certain varieties of. I grew Mennonite and my birds loved it, and it gave them no ill effects whatsoever. My understanding is some sorghums and Sudan grass sorghum crosses, they really need to not be eaten when they're young. Uh, it's like a green. That wasn't a problem with straight sorghum here anyway. My sorghum grew beautifully. It was ignored. It was not eaten. It wasn't consumed. They never wanted anything to do with it until they figured out what the big plumy thing on the top was. And when I was growing a lot of it in the food forest before the trees really came in and there was a lot of sun still getting in there, I, again, I was growing Mennonite. I also grew white African giant. They liked that as well. But the Mennonite seemed to be the best overall sorghum that I grew. And what would happen is, you know, I had some geese at the time, and once they figured it out, once that seed head would kind of get, they could kind of tell, like, oh, it's ready, they would actually chew on the stalk like they were cutting down a tree, and they would chew on it and chew on it and chew on it until the whole thing fell over. And then all the geese and all the ducks would run in and, and, and the chickens, and they would all kind of, like, share it, uh, greedily share it, I guess you would say. They kind of tolerated each other as they all devoured it, and they would get another one. And once I realized they were doing that, I would just look at a branch and say, oh, 
that one's probably good for them, and I would just bend over two or three at a time so they weren't all competing for one. So sorghum was a great one for me. And again, white African giant and Mennonite were the two that I had the best of luck with. And what I learned about sorghum really quick was I could go plant sorghum as early as I could in my, 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 uh, my, my climate, and it would grow, and it would form a seed head. And I could go through, and I could cut it, and I could either store it, or I could just drop it to the ground for the birds. And then it would grow back, and it would grow another seed head. And I could cut it, and it would grow back and grow another seed head. And I would usually get about three crops per plant per year of a really great grain that they loved. I didn't have to do anything to encourage them to eat it. I didn't have to harvest it. I didn't have to do... The only sorghum I harvested was I would pick some plants that looked really good, and I would I would go ahead and I would cut those heads and dry them out, and I would sh you know sh shuck that into a bucket so that I had seed to plant again without having to buy more seed. But I, I never really, I don't like a guy that's going to sit down and eat a bowl of sorghum, <laughs> but it's it's got a high amount of uh, sugar, carbohydrate in it, which is great for your birds. It's got a decent amount of protein and a decent amount of fat as well. Next up today is sesame. Sesame was one I almost left out because they're really, really tiny seeds, and they're more of a hot weather uh, climate crop uh, grown a lot in the Middle East and what have you. But when I looked into it, they actually turn out to be really easy to grow, and chickens apparently love sesame seed. So that's something you can look into. I don't have any experience with it. I don't know much about whether or not it's a really good crop to grow in the United States. I've never tried. Uh, but when I looked into uh, it more deeply, it was also like garbanzo beans, something that in third world countries was often grown Uh, in, 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 in abundance, and since they have a lot of it, a lot of it actually gets made into poultry feeds in these other countries where, again, they don't grow tremendous amounts of soy. So that was something, when I saw that, I'm like, well, I'm going to put it there and let people kind of make up their own mind with it. Next up is uh, amaranth, and, and amaranth is considered, you know, like a superfood, and we just had Dr. Barry's rant on Superfoods Friday, which I wholeheartedly agree with, by the way. Amaranth is one of these grains that has a lot going for it, though. It's really more of a seed than a grain. And it is a highly nutritious grain, and it has more complete protein, along with its, its, its cousin or sister quinoa, than just about anything you can grow in the ground. It, it, is, it is one of the most... Uh, that quinoa, amaranth, and hemp are the most complete plant proteins that we have. They also have serapins, sanapins, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, sapins or something, um, and, and, and a significant amount of anti-nutrients in them and some anti-growth factors in them. So raw amaranth is a bad thing to give specifically to like broiler chickens and things like that to make up the bulk of their feed. It will actually slow down their growth rates, and it can, if given in excess, actually cause them to go into like seizures and die. It is, however, used extensively for poultry feed. And when it's heated, all of those things are destroyed, much like soy. Now, it doesn't have the phytoestrogens and things like that in it that soy does, which, by the way, are not eliminated through the heating process. So it's generally recognized that amaranth to be given to poultry as a primary or significant part of their feed has got to be in some way heat treated. That's probably not something that you're going to find yourself doing a great deal on your property. And But this is where I want to like temper all of the concerns that I brought up with any of like too much of this, too much of that. Birds, when they have the ability to get a varied diet, tend to not overeat any one thing and they tend to know things aren't good for them. As stupid as a chicken is, they tend to know things aren't good for them. And what I've noticed with the amaranth, and I have amaranth growing all over this property, various crosses and forms and wild and, and what have you, they don't really eat much on the amaranth seed. Occasionally they'll peck a little bit here and a little bit there, but I mean, I can take big, huge amaranth plants, cut the tops off and throw them, and they kind of scratch at it a bit and peck a few here and there, but they really, and part of it might just be they're so small, I don't think it's worth it. But again, they love sesame seeds. However... The reason I'm including amaranth is even though this would be the use of a green, it is one of the highest protein by weight 
greens that you can get. The greens in amaranth also have, when consumed raw, some anti-nutrient and some anti-growth properties to them. However, the only thing you have to do with the green portion of amaranth to make it suitable for poultry feed is dry it. If you dry it, you're good. You don't have to heat dry it. You can literally cut big stalks of amaranth, hang it up, let it dry, crumble the leaf, and mix the leaf into your feed, either self-made or the feed that you give your birds. Boost the protein, boost the nutrients. Everything is all good at that point, and they'll eat it when it's mixed in with other things. They, you, you won't find if you put a, a big handful of crumbled amaranth leaf into your chicken feed that when you get down to all the fines that they don't really want at the bottom, you won't find a bunch of the amaranth leaf in there. So it's literally a way to grow high-protein feed, and then you can do what you want with the grain. I grow the hell out of amaranth because we eat the hell out of the greens when they're young. But we always let some go to seed. I've got some pretty big red amaranth in the uh, aviary right now that just volunteered. And what I'm going to do someday this week is cut it, and I'm just going to hang it right in the aviary until it's dry, and I'll cr again, I'll crumble it into their feed. So depending on your setup and, and what you have available to you, you might find that this is a great way to add protein to your poultry. It's not in today, but I would say another crop that would do something very similar is comfrey. Um, and I know people, you can't feed them comfrey. But well, if you feed them like 60% of their diet in comfrey, that's a bad thing. But again, small amounts, lots of protein, lots of nutrient, etc. The last thing, and this is thinking a lot more long term, but boy, this is, if you really want Everything a chicken needs, and you want a huge supply of it, plant some low tannin white acorns. Because they're ideal for long-term storage. You can and you know, the thing about an acorn is a lot of times they get weevils and stuff in them and stuff like that. So if it's you or me, we're not real pleased with that. To a chicken, it's just more protein. Bugs are a great thing that you can do for your, your chicken's diet as well, right? Um I, I just would say you would need some form of processing. I have not found that chickens do a lot of eating of whole acorns. The chicken is only going to work as hard as it has to. Now, ducks. I have not observed my ducks, my domestic ducks, eating a lot of acorns. Now, part of that is the acorns that naturally are on my property are um, live oak, post oak, and they're, they're, they're highly tannic. And hence, quite bitter. So they might not just be very palatable. But when I used to hunt ducks a lot in Pennsylvania as a kid, wood ducks in particular, I mean, you could literally you'd shoot a duck and you'd like feel a crop and it'd be lumps and you could just put, like, it was like feeding like bullets out of a magazine, like just pop, you know, half a dozen or so acorns right out of their mouth that were down in their throat where they had just been eating. So they ate it like crazy. So I don't know how ducks would behave around a good, palatable white acorn, a domestic duck. I never shot a lot of mallards, so there's a, there's a species differential there. A wood duck is not a mallard species. Almost all the ducks in, in a backyard flock, other than the Muscovy ducks, are actually mallards. I mean, rowans are the ones that look most, they like big mallards, which is what they are. But all your ducks, your Saxonies, your Welsh Harlequins, your 300 layers, your uh, runner ducks, uh, various, your buffs, your Cayugas, etc., like they're uh, Swedish, they're all actually mallards. They were just bred different colors, sizes, shapes, etc., over time and refined down. And what's been changed is what you see, not the underlying genetics. The genotype is still thermallard. If you If you sent the genetics off somewhere, they'd say this is a mallard. Now, they might also be able to figure out with certain markers that it would be a mallard that had become a Cayuga, but they're, they're all mallards. So I don't know if mallards, and hence backyard ducks, really have a fondness for acorns. I will tell you that during the Great Depression in our country, especially after the chestnuts had been devastated, farmers fed backyard poultry uh, massive amounts of acorns. So I, I do think it's one of those things, that you, if you have high tannin, most of your red oaks, etc., you're probably not going to have a good uptake on that and a good acceptance of it, and it's probably not good for them but because too much tannin is bad for anything. But, you know, wild ducks, wild turkeys, deer, all eat acorns of their own volition all the time. 
So I think it's something that you could definitely look into. And it, I mean, now if you start thinking about that, if you have the right climate to grow the right types of oaks, it might take a while for them to produce. But once they start producing, the amount of mass drop off of one large white oak is unbelievable. And like in you know the old saying, now you got some, right? If you can get that one to work, so I want to throw that in for my uh, my final recommendation here. I want to just throw some thoughts in here toward the end. Number one, reducing reducing your offsite inputs is always good. If you are you know I raise my own birds, but you're going through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of feed. Well, that's not bad. But let's be honest, you're feeding birds food that somebody else raised. And while the product you're producing, and we do this too, right? We, my, my birds primarily are fed a diet of Texas natural feeds, which is a peanut meal-based feed, no GMO, no soy. And so I'm not saying that, again, it's not all or nothing. But the more you can produce on site, to feed your animals with, the less dependent you are. And so it's not just a money thing. It's also an independence thing. And next, I think soy fed especially to egg-laying animals is one of the biggest nutritional blunders that's ever been made by mankind. I think a host of inflammatory problems are directly or at least partially related to the consumption of soy. I say this as somebody who's been raising ducks and chickens now for eight years that did it for about four years where we were producing a massive amount of product. You know, it, was, it was a full commercial operation that we were doing at that point. We were running a free-range commercial duck farm for about four years. We were selling anywhere from 20 to 40 dozen eggs a week. At this point, we had customers who were driving an hour and a half, two hours, a couple times a month just to buy eggs from us at four to five times what you could buy eggs for in the grocery store. There were repeat customers that came back that when we decided we weren't going to be that big anymore, were pretty emotionally upset about it. Like, what am I going to do now? We sold birds off to people. We taught them what to do. We told them what kind of feed to use. And a lot of them, when push came to shove, they stopped feeding the non-soy feed. And our customers got with us and said, hey, I started buying from so-and-so that you sold off you know, 50 of your birds to. Everything was good for a couple months. Then I started having health issues again. I asked them, and when I confronted them, they admitted they started selling lower-end feed. I have had people come to us that... We have a couple that we still sell to now that we kind of give priority to who say things like, I can't, I literally can't eat an egg anywhere but the eggs I get from you. And I find it almost overwhelming the evidence is about its soy. And we have so many issues with hormonal imbalances and things like that in our country today. And you just really have to think about what you're doing. When you And I, I don't think soy is a good feed for animals in general. I really don't. But really think about what you're doing when you feed soy to a livestock whose purpose is to make eggs for people to eat. You're taking a plant high in phytoestrogens, estrogen mimicry, basically. They're, very, they're estrogens that are not the estrogens that human females make. Right? They're kind of one-off. You're feeding it to an animal that ovulates on an ongoing basis and produces an egg. And it is going to concentrate estrogens, including estrogens that it's consuming, in that egg. And then you're feeding that egg to people who would, in a normal diet of the human being, even if you believe that humans ate grain when we were living in caves, which we hardly did at all, right? But even if you believe we did, even if you believe that the, 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 the cavemen that lived adjacent to the Cro-Magnon that was walking around and clubbing shit had a wheat field, even if you believe that, there is no place 
did a product that humans would have eaten at that time would have such a concentration of estrogens in it? None. And I defy you to find one for me that people would regularly eat. People regularly ate eggs. They raided nests of birds. of Just about any bird they could find, they would take their eggs and eat them. They figured out real quick, hey, this is an energy source. right? And they can't run away. And it's fairly portable. And it's pretty good tasting, too. So we've been eating eggs since the dawn of understanding what an egg was. We have not been eating eggs laced with these phytoestrogens from soy until the, the middle 1900s up till now. And there's a lot of other stupid things we've done, like, you know, high fructose corn syrup, etc. But to me, putting soy into our egg supply was a terrible decision. And then you add obesity, type 2 diabetes, all these other things, and this aggravation. And I'm telling you, we have cancer patients who have made, and I'm not even, I have not even done the research to know exactly why, but have made soy-free duck eggs part of their personal treatment program, and they rely on us, as a, in their words, not mine, as a form of medicine. And again, those are people, we have people who are recovering from illnesses that say, that, like we have one guy, he buys them for his son, he buys as many as we'll give him. Literally, he can't eat anything else. And I, I'm, I don't have, like, it's not like I say I'm a redneck hippie duck farmer and all, but it's not like I go outside and I chant under the Bodhi tree and I have some divine light that descends down on my ducks. Right? Because I'm talking about people that don't just say I can only eat duck. They're like, I can only eat yours. It's soy, guys. And this is what I think people should, and the reason I'm bringing this up is everything we talked about today helps you eliminate soy. It helps you afford more expensive feed that's soy-free. Right? Not just worry about whether Ice Age Farmers right, there's going to be a great soy boy shortage in, in 2021. All right? But it makes it more doable to get your birds off the soy. Because this is something that I think Americans in particular struggle with. Binary code is great for computers. It doesn't belong in the human brain for the majority of things in our lives, especially when it affects our health. When I'm talking about binary code, ones and zeros, on and off, yes or no. So I eat soy, I'm not really, really sick, therefore soy doesn't have a, an adverse effect on me. It doesn't work like that. You can be causing an inflammatory response in your, at your systemic level, but it's just not bad enough to feel really bad. And often the case, it's worse than you think. I can't tell you how many people have told me, you know, I, I really wasn't that overweight and I didn't feel that bad, but I kind of followed your example. I, I really stopped drinking, you know, except for, you know, dinners out and stuff like that and uh, maybe a drink on the weekends or whatever, but I really cut my drinking back to almost nothing and I got on keto. And I don't know what it is, but I feel incredible now. And when I drink a little bit too much, I feel awful. I didn't used to. Not, not just been drunk and like a tolerance thing, I like just, I realize I don't feel good. I realize I don't wake up the same way. Or if I go off and I'm you know, the hell with it, I'm going to have bacon and, and, and biscuits and gravy, you know, and I'm going to have a big carb fest. That I, they, they feel bad for a day or two before they come back out of it. And they realize, like, I felt like that all the time, but I didn't feel like that all the time and know it. Because I felt like that all the time, I thought I was okay. Soy and other things that cause inflammatory responses in human beings can do the same type of thing. And you can have health issues. And some of them, you have a little bit of irritation and inflammation for your whole life. And you wonder why something like our cancer rates go up. You see how that works. And so I did this show as much because we're adapting to the problem of not having as stable of an agricultural supply in the future as the, the agricultural supply generally provides things that even if we're not eating it, we're feeding to our livestock, maybe aren't the best things for us or our livestock. And if you just think about what a soybean is, you know, I, I, I'll put it to you this way. I used to hunt along a soybean field in Pennsylvania, and I hunted deer. And I would ask this, these two ladies that owned the land, and they, like their, their, their husbands had died and passed away, and they were leasing it to another farmer who was growing the soy. What about, I mean, you guys got a lot of deer around here. Don't they eat the soybeans? No, nah, they don't really eat them. 
They might eat some here and there, but they really don't eat very much of them. Think about that. I mean, really. Why do you think that's the case? Again, there's something like 11 toxins in a raw soybean. And I am not a complete purist. Like, just because something in one form is not something humans can eat, but if we process it a certain way, cook it, etc., it becomes safe, that we shouldn't eat it at all. I'm I'm, I'm not that guy. I I think that we should pay attention and at least acknowledge that and and look at that maybe there's a reason for that and maybe we shouldn't be eating it uh, after it's processed or not eating it as a mainstay in our diet. But when it comes to something like a chicken, the original jungle fowl was from Asia. And again, it was the, all, all chickens come from these fowl that were native to uh, the Southeast Asian area and lived in the jungle. That bird would never have eaten soy, period. It would have never consumed anything with the phytoestrogens in it that soybeans have. Soybeans were considered a trash crop until the early 1900s when a big move was made to install them into U.S. agriculture. And the case was not made that, hey, this is like a really great thing for people to eat. It was, hey, this is a thing that people and animals can eat, and we can grow it, and we can grow lots of it and make lots of money for farmers. And just maybe, you know, I don't want to turn this whole show into why not to use soy, but I'm just pointing out that all the things I gave you today are ways to use less soy, even if you rely on some soy in your feed that you're purchasing. And and the more of it you can eliminate, the better. And the more your birds are eating that's natural and native and healthy and happy, the less you're going to have to feed them if that's what you... Because I'll still say this, after all this, if your choices are poultry and eggs from your backyard that eat conventional feed or poultry from the store, I'll take the backyard poultry. I don't care if you fed it the cheapest feed there is. It's still better for you. But really think about it with your egg your egg layers. Because most of you guys out there, you're, you're, you know, you're not raising 150 birds like we were when we were commercial. You're raising six, eight layers. And even if it's twice as expensive to feed them a higher cost feed, it's still not a lot of money, especially if you can augment it with some of the things we have today. Uh, reducing inputs, just period, is always good. Uh, it eliminates soy. And the birds do seem to me to enjoy variety, and it's a more natural way to do things. And, of course, we didn't talk about growing leaf crops and greens and pasture and things like that for them today. We will do that sometime in the near future. You add that to this, and it just gets more powerful. And I, even though I didn't talk about like sprouting grains and doing fodder and stuff like that, it's still a great way to do things, and it's still a good, and we're going to talk about that again too because when we, if we try to do any one of these things, the idea that we're going to produce even 75% of what we feed a backyard flock is, is pretty far-fetched. But if we do all of them, we might be able to do all. You might be able to do 100%. I don't know if it's the best way to try to do it. Our time is valuable too, but at least there's the possibility, and that means we can pick the things that work the best for us. Um, and there's just so much that we can do in other ways to improve poultry diets. We can, you know, black soldier fly larvae is an incredible way with composting and then feeding the larvae to the chickens. That's a great idea. It's something that we should probably all look at doing. Uh, just flat out composting with chickens supplements their diet. You can do a lot of things that people probably don't even think about. If you were to just hang up a couple bug lights on a timer near your coop, your chicken coop, and let, the chickens will take it from there. So if you have a chicken coop, like I have a pretty big coop for my ducks and my chickens, it would be real easy, and maybe I should do this because there's power out there, to take a couple standoff hooks, attach them to the, the walls of it, hang a couple bug zappers out there, set them on a timer where they come on about you know an hour before dark and go off an hour after dark, so about two hours a night. Because I don't know if you've ever enjoyed the redneck pastime of drinking a beer and watching a bug zapper. It's pretty fun. But you always think, like, later at night it's going to get better, and it really tends to not get better. It's that first sundown time and then of course your birds are in bed anyway but you know they're going to snap real quick to the fact that there's toasty roasty little bugs all in that spot and you might even put it right over a place where you're doing composting so you're getting double duty done as all those little bugs roast and fall down in there 
they're going to work a little bit harder on that compost, do a little bit more work for you. So there's tons of things we can do here. I've done it. I've done that with fish. I mean, that's a totally different subject. But I've hung a bug zapper over a fish pond, and pssst, fish just eat the bugs. It's just a natural as, as day is long for them to do that. So there's lots of ways we can do this, and I think we need to maybe do some more shows like this going forward with how do we become more adaptive toward our food production and rely less on inputs. And, and every time I say that, I want someone to, I, I'm not saying not to use inputs. I'm not saying not to buy you know, seed from the store or whatever. But the other thing about all the stuff I gave you today, you can save enough of that to plant another crop in the next, next go-round. Certainly sunflower is easy. You know, you'd save a couple of sunflower heads. In fact, what I would do personally to get more genetic diversity is I would just, you know, grab a head and, and knock off a, a handful of seeds, grab another head, knock off another handful of seeds, grab four or five or six different heads and get a little bit of seed off of each one. You end up with plenty of seed to plant again. And, I mean, the other side of that is what's, what does it cost to get a 50-pound bag of sunflower seed, like 17 bucks? So the sunflower seed you buy for birds from Tractor Supply, it's fine to grow more sunflowers with. There's no reason, especially for your birds, no reason not to. Anyway, with that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, do consider becoming part of the MSB, or Members Support Brigade. Uh, if you do that, you'll help support the show. It only costs about 18 cents an episode when you do the math. You get a bunch of discounts. You use all those discounts, and then you get your money back and then some, so you actually make money by being a member. That makes a lot of sense. It's a pretty easy decision to make. If I can buy something that's going to put money in my pocket, I generally am more than happy to do that. And if it supports something I really enjoy, then even better. And that's what I try to build MSB into. And without you guys that are members, I could not do this show every day. I could not do what I do. I couldn't put out all the material I do, all the different channels I put it out on. The only way I've been able to dedicate my life to doing this work is because of you all. So thank you for that. Uh, next up. Uh, do consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. No matter where you're gonna, no, no matter what you're gonna eventually buy, if you just go there first and you use that, the links that are there, you will help support us. Today's item of the day are the Barina LED grow lights, six packs in two foot and four foot models. I brought them around because they're on sale today. The, uh, the, the two foot models are 14 bucks off a six pack and the, uh, 15, and they're 15 off for the, uh, for the uh, the six foot ones, so that's that's a pretty good little discount. And you know, we just talked about growing food for chickens today, and probably a lot of that you're not going to start indoors or grow indoors. But this is going to be a hard winter, uh, and I, I'm, I don't mean that in the terrifying way that the TV tries to make it. With you're going to die of COVID. Oh, by the way, my son and daughter-in-law right now, and probably my two grandchildren who have no symptoms and are asymptomatic, all have COVID. Just an aside here, I, I wanted to make sure I made this announcement. Because we're like, what are you going to do if your family gets COVID? Okay, well, they have COVID, and they're doing fine with it. And, uh, you know, you can tell people things over and over again. You can say what people should do, and it's up to them whether they do it or not. Uh, they have not been taking Q-certain, zinc, magnesium, D3, and vitamin C. They just have not been doing it. We take multivitamins. Okay, well, Q-certain, right, my whole regiment that I've recommended. Um, about a week ago, their parents, both of them, uh, her parents, right? Um, I get my, I don't know what you'd call my son's mother and father-in-law uh, came down with COVID, and, and the and the mother-in-law uh, was in the hospital for about a week on oxygen, not ICU or anything, but on oxygen because she's having trouble breathing. She's home now; they're recovered; they're they're fine. Um, we had. At least one person here at the workshop several weeks ago that went home and tested positive for COVID. I have almost been surrounded here and there by people with COVID that I've been exposed to, no masks, etc. I'm not going to go out and start licking uh, handrails or anything like that. If somebody tells me I ha they have COVID, I'm not going to go spend a bunch of time with them. I'm going to avoid them until they recover. Um, I'm not going to tempt fate, but I'm just going to say... No COVID for me, no COVID for my wife. And we have been on that regiment since March. And maybe it's something to consider. And, you know, just, just with that, uh, I know I was talking about item of the day, but I just, it kind of dawned on me as we got here. Um, I'm, I'm not saying the winter's going to be hard because of COVID, but there are things you can do. 
and I don't have any proof that this works other than every doctor that's took an honest look at it said, yeah, that, that, that makes sense, the way that the Q-certain and zinc work together and, and get the zinc into the cells and how RNA, like all of it makes sense. Uh, more than one doctor went out and bought it for their own family. And, again, this doesn't prove anything. But I've gotten multiple emails from people that have said, I, I started taking this. I told my wife, brother, cousin, fill-in-the-blank, roommate, cousin's former roommate, whatever, that they should be taking it too. They refused. I took it. They got it, and I didn't. That does not prove anything. But it's interesting, and it, it is at least anecdotal evidence. What I have not had is anybody email me and say, I was taking it, and I got sick with the Rona. Not one person has. And you would think with the sample size of people here that, that, that if, if it didn't at least help. Now, I've had people say, you know, my, my wife got it. She was pretty sick. I was in, you know, I sleep in the same bed with her. I was clearly exposed to her multiple times. Um, wouldn't take it. I took it. I got a little bit of a scratchy throat, and that was it. Now, again, a lot of people have very mild cases anyway. So it doesn't prove anything. Just go say, Q-certain, zinc, magnesium, D3, supplemental copper, so you, you know, because you're taking zinc long term. Vitamin C, man, come on. It, it doesn't hurt nothing. It doesn't cost much. But that said, I think winter is going to be a tough winter. It's going to be a good year to be growing some food indoors and a good year to hit the ground running with starts. These lights will help you with that, so check out tspaz.com. Sorry to go long on that. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. This is a very misunderstood song, actually. Um, I actually noticed in the comments on YouTube, uh, especially by women, who it's really written for is uh, largely a misunderstood song. And uh, the, uh, the song is called Beautiful With You, and it's by Hailstorm. And it, it very much does sound like she found a man and the man made her complete and now she's happy. But it's not what the song's about. If you read the, the, the write-up on song facts about it, it was about learning to love herself. And it's, it's really not a song about being completed by another person. It's a song about learning to accept yourself with every flaw and every scar and every mistake that you've ever made in your life and being okay with it and being empowered with it. And and, and it really is kind of a girl power song. And that's good because we got a lot of women in this audience too. And it is probably one of the biggest mistakes that I see women make in their lives. And don't think it's picking on women because men make I'd say in general men make more, more mistakes in their lives than women if, then that should let me say what I need to say now without twerking anybody off but one of the biggest mistakes I see in, in, in women is this belief that if they just find the right guy everything will be okay and I'm going to say this is true for both but again I see it a lot in women if you cannot get to this point Without somebody else in your life, the best you can hope for is codependency. That's the best you can hope for. And I do think there's a... So don't misunderstand what I'm about to say here. There are times when things are hard, when in our relationships we do hold each other up, right? But that should not be an ongoing thing. You and your partner should not hold each other up. You should lift each other up. And those are wholly different things. Holding each other up means you need each other. Lifting each other up is because you're together because you love each other. And that's what this song's really about, is learning to love yourself so that you can be that for somebody else. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.